This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. What time is it? Well, it's a question almost as, well, almost as old as time itself. When I caught on to the concept of time as a kid, I was always asking that question. So much so that my parents got fed up with always having to tell me, so they got me a Snoopy watch when I was still pretty young, probably about four or five, and taught me to read Snoopy's hands as they revolved around the center point. And digital clocks were awesome too. My parents no longer had to constantly update me on the time. In the Middle Ages, there was a role of a clock keeper, whose job was to keep track of time and maintain clocks, to make sure that the town clock or clocks were accurate. These clock keepers had to be able to do some math in a time when not everyone had access to education. They had to keep the clocks working well, and they might even attend to shifting clocks to stay on time, moving them as many as twice per day to keep them as accurate as possible. And even cathedrals and monasteries may have had a clock keeper to make sure that they were accurately observing rituals and traditions at the right times. Nowadays, we don't hire a clock keeper, but we keep our eyes on the world clock. It's been around since New Year's Day of 1960, just after the first atomic clock was built meant to be more accurate than traditional mechanical clocks which had the problem of second hands running too fast or too slow. The world clock is not one actual clock that the world uses though, but everyone does their local clocks using an internationally agreed standard called Coordinated Universal Time, also known as UTC. UTC is based on two things, the ticking of hundreds of ultra-stable atomic clocks positioned all around the world and the rotation of the Earth. And that's how we agree upon what are seconds and minutes and hours and days. And we all set our watches by adding or subtracting from UTC depending on where we are in the world. Sometimes there are even leap seconds, where a second may be added or subtracted from a certain day to make up for the Earth's rotation, which is not always stable. Interestingly, they need to announce at least six months in advance when they plan to schedule a leap second to get us back on track with time again, so everything in our world can go like well, go like clockwork. Lots of people have different perceptions of time. To some, time is of the essence, and being on time is critical, even living by the motto that to be on time is to be late. So they anticipate and set alarms and always try to beat the clock. For others, and in some cultures especially, time is more or less a suggestion. And some people live on island time or Spanish time, slower-paced cultures not watching the clock all the time. There's even, quote, Calvary time at some churches I've been to where things don't always start on time. People taking their time to get things started as they fellowship with one another and get the services started when everyone is ready. Whatever your take on time, our God is eternal, outside of time and space. But for one who does not own a wristwatch in the section of Mark that we're reading, God's timing is everything. As Jesus is there on the cross, we see how many things are timed out perfectly and how in just a matter of a few hours, so many things that have been planned from the foundation of the world come to pass right on time, like clockwork. A perfect plan of God is perfectly fulfilled. And we take a look now in Mark 15 in verses 33 through 39. The bystanders near the cross have witnessed the progression. Jesus, scourged and bloodied by the mocking Roman soldiers at the Praetorium. The crowd witnessing the procession to Golgotha, the place of the crucifixion. Simon the Cyrene called upon to bear the cross. The soldiers casting lots for his clothing, two thieves on either side. And people passing by there from this visual location, putting in their two cents, taunting him to come down and save himself. 
something that Jesus will not do because he is saving them and us in that moment. All the shenanigans of the cruel and chaotic scene, all those things have taken place. And now Jesus is on the cross between the two criminals, and now it is time to wait. Crucifixion was an interesting way of torture. The victims often took a long time to finally die, sometimes even days hanging out there. In the end, many times they died of suffocation, not from the nails or anything like that. Breathing became labored as they pushed up on their legs and pulled up with their arms. Eventually, they became so exhausted that they could no longer fight to breathe anymore. But it took time to die with crucifixion, a slow, painful death, and one that served as an example for everyone to see. The Romans publicly declaring, don't do what they did or else. So now they are at the cross. They wait and see what happens. And the scene is set ever so perfectly for a series of details that are oh so important. Sort of like the toppling of a row of dominoes, very quickly lining up and toppling over. Details lined up for a long time now prophetically. All coming to pass, one after another, to complete God's plan of redemption. And timing is everything, and this latter half of the crucifixion plays out like clockwork. We pick up with Jesus on the cross, and we read verses 33 through 36. It says, Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. By the Roman clock, it is now the sixth hour of the day. Mark writing to a Gentile audience, this is noon, and it's been a full day so far. Some days seem to get off to a slow start, don't they? And by noon, you feel like you have not really done anything productive yet. Well, not this day. It's just noon, and so much has already happened. The early morning trial before at first light, a quick handoff to Herod, then back to Pilate. The crowd crying, crucify him, the criminal Barabbas released. The garrison of guards spitting and mocking, the scourging, the carrying of the cross with the help of Simon ever so slowly through the streets of Jerusalem, and all the input of the bystanders at the cross. It is just noon, and Jesus is on the cross. And from man's perspective, there is no telling how long this could take. People hung on the cross sometimes for days before dying. But time is of the essence here for this particular crucifixion. It's the Passover. And Jesus must die today to fulfill all that he was doing. The Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. This was the chosen time by the Father. And so no matter what circumstances might normally do, no matter the agenda of the Romans, no matter the commitments of the Jews who had the feast to attend to, Jesus will complete the work of the cross this same day. So it is noon. And as the verses say, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Over the whole land. Darkness. How eerie when it gets dark in the middle of the day. In Oklahoma, we can have spring storms, and thick clouds can come sweeping in, ominous, foreboding, and block out some of the light, giving off the vibe that something is not right. And when the threat passes, the light returns, as if nothing had happened. But this darkness here at the crucifixion, three hours over the whole land. Like clockwork, the whole land is plunged into darkness. How odd that must have been. 
People would have needed to light torches and lamps to continue on with whatever they were doing. This would have interrupted the day, been noticed for sure. It would have been reflected upon, pondered. People would have taken note that something was out of the ordinary. I saw in the news recently that in about a year from the time of this recording, a solar eclipse will occur over a swath of the United States. Kind of a big deal as a lot of the country will get to witness it, even parts of Oklahoma where we live. And people are planning and anticipating for it a year in advance. It will be something people are taking note of even in advance to be ready for it. How odd it must have been back in the days, though. If a solar eclipse was coming, it wasn't planned. It wasn't prepared for. People didn't buy those special glasses to be able to look at. They were just plunged into darkness. But is this actually an eclipse that took place? Well, we'll discuss in a second or so whether or not this was an eclipse, but an eclipse for that long, even if it did really occur, how miraculous that the timing of it was so perfect that it happened right as Jesus was there on the cross. But this darkness sweeps through the whole land as Jesus is on the cross. It was the Lord sending a message that man should take note. Something significant was happening in this moment. It was time to reflect. Interesting when the power goes out for some time, especially at night, we wonder, well, what do I do now? We're so used to having power to keep the lights on, to do things, to watch things, that when the power is off and you have no lights or electricity, you find yourself with less to do and you just kind of sit there. Here in Jerusalem, for three hours, the lights go out. Time to sit and ponder and to reflect. I was at work one Friday afternoon and the power went off at 2.30, about an hour before we were to be let off on Friday, and there was nothing left me to do. I literally sat there for about 10 seconds and said, well, there's nothing. I just got to go. I'm going home at this point. At this point, they're there at the cross, the lights go out. What do we do now? This darkness was not just a coincidence. It could not have been an eclipse, since an eclipse lasts normally just a few minutes. Plus the fact that this is Passover and a full moon, during which time an eclipse cannot take place. The Passover took place every year on a full moon. It was by the lunar calendar. So there's no way that an eclipse could have taken place at this moment, because the earth, the moon, and the sun are not in the right alignment at a full moon. This could not have been a natural occurrence of an eclipse, but an intentional darkness of much greater significance. Some say it was the darkness of judgment, as Jesus was bearing our sins on the cross, the Father turning his face away, turning his back on him, unable to look upon the Son. For sin has us dwelling in darkness, and when we sin, we walk in darkness. We read in Proverbs 2, From those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Jesus said to them earlier in his ministry in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For you are once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And we find in 1 John 1, 6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Jesus was light. Jesus brought light, but when Jesus took upon the sins of the world, darkness fell. So this darkness, lots of potential symbolism and meaning, but as Jesus bore the sins of man, the whole area knew the darkness that went along with it. But it was not just symbolic. According to Christian Apologetics Research Ministry website, or CARM, a historian named Thallus wrote a history of the Eastern Mediterranean world from the Trojan War to his own time. He wrote it in 52 AD, so within 20 years of the time of Jesus' crucifixion. While there are no copies of his original work, other historians have quotes of Thallus. 
One scholar named Julius Africanus, who wrote about 221 AD, referenced Thallus's writings that referred to this darkness. Africanus noticed, on the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. Africanus said that Thallus, in his third book of history, called it an eclipse of the sun, but Africanus, writing 200 years later, sees that that could not be. Because as we said earlier, the Jewish calendar followed a strictly lunar cycle, and the Passover on which Jesus had been crucified could not have had all the astronomical conditions to see an actual eclipse. But nevertheless, it is on record that at this time, 32 AD, some darkness fell over the land. It was a notable, intentional, and noted darkness. It's an interesting picture of sin, darkness. In darkness, we don't see clearly. We stumble. We trip, we get injured, just like when we're in sin. In darkness, things might look one way, but turn on the lights and you see things differently. Thinking back to being a kid and in the dark, something in your room looked like a boogeyman, but turn on the light and you see it was just something else completely non-threatening, like the laundry you were supposed to fold or the jacket or hoodie you forgot to hang up. Or things look more appealing in the dark sometimes, but when you see it in the brighter light, you start to see all the flaws and the imperfections. Like the frat boy who picked up a girl at a club under all the dim lighting and smoke machines, only to realize on their next meetup with the lights on that she was not quite as attractive as he thought he was. And or sorry, as he thought she was. That's the influence of sin as well. Being in darkness, we can be deceived. Like when you pick out socks in the dim or dark lighting, and they look like the same color, only to realize later in the day that you're wearing one gray sock and one blue sock the light having shown the reality of what you chose. All those things symbolic of sin, how we don't make good choices, how things appear one way and upon reflection later we realize just how bad they really are. How much clearer and better to walk in the light, to not scour around in the shadows, but to walk in the light of God and his truth. Sin will always take us into a detour of darkness, but walking the light is what God would have for us. At the cross, the darkness fell three hours as Jesus took on our sin and darkness. At the end of the three hours, we see this. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama salakhtani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father, having turned his back on Jesus as he took our sin upon him, for all of eternity, fellowship between the Father and the Son never broken. Now, with the sin of man upon Jesus, the Father turning his back on Jesus, Jesus taking the separation that we deserve. He now experiencing what for us, so that we do not have to, It's interesting. This phrase will be said over each and every life. Sin does and will separate us from God. And we can either let Jesus say this for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if we believe and receive his death in our place, then that phrase has already been said. But for those who reject Jesus and what he did on the cross, they themselves will say this at their own death and judgment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How much better to let Jesus say it for us to let him be the one who dealt with it. How tragic for those who will say this for themselves one day because they're still in their sin. That's why God has forsaken them.
when it is totally unnecessary since Jesus has already said it for those who believe and put their trust in what he did for them. And he will say this for your life as well, if you'll just repent and be saved. When Jesus said this, he was quoting from verse 1 of Psalm 22, a messianic psalm that had been written hundreds of years earlier, one that when you read through it pointedly talks about the crucifixion very specific language that shows that the crucifixion was prophesied about, even down to details like his hands and his feet being pierced, that none of his bones would be broken, that they cast lots for his clothing, that his mouth would be dry and cling to his mouth, that he would be surrounded by Gentiles. It was written hundreds of years before and now almost like a checklist and like clockwork. All these things are being fulfilled in this short window of time that we're reading right now, specifically fulfilled. But Jesus quotes the first line of the psalm. He knew what was taking place. In those days, a rabbi might quote a line of scripture, and then you as a good student were to go home and read the rest of it. They might read the beginning of a chapter, the first line, and then you're to go home and read the rest of the chapter. It could be that Jesus is doing the same thing, quoting this line from the psalm as it is fulfilled in this moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that the religious leaders and the disciples might think, hey, wait, that's Psalm 22, isn't it? And go home and read it and see for themselves that all that is happening in this scene, it was prophesied before by the Holy Spirit, that God knew that these things would happen. He saw it in advance. And as out of control as this scene seems, God has it all under control. It's being fulfilled exactly as should happen and as it needed to happen. It's all happening like clockwork. All the dominoes in place that they are toppling nicely and in order, just like they should. What a significant moment. Since the garden, right after mankind had sinned, God had a plan of redemption in place. And now in this short window on a hill outside of Jerusalem, as Jesus is crucified, it's all being fulfilled. Centuries of waiting, and in a short window of time, it is all being completed. It's amazing how God works sometimes. Sometimes it feels like he's working ever so slowly and asks us to be patient and trust him and wait upon him. It seems like he is taking his time in no rush to get things moving. And then other times it feels like God moves quickly and precisely, making it all happen seemingly almost at once, the dominoes falling in quick succession. Watching dominoes fall is kind of mesmerizing. Some great YouTube videos out there of dominoes toppling over, revealing images and pictures that are pretty cool. At the start of the pandemic, a lot of people delved into dominoes and shot videos and posted them for others to see. There's one called Cat Navi Desk of some cats watching dominoes fall in line and eventually the last domino sets off a cat, cat feeder for them. But so cute, these cats just watching as they dominoes pass from left to right. The world record that I saw for a domino line was over 15,000 dominoes, all lined up strategically. It took two days to build, but fell in about five minutes. Each domino placed in the right spot as it was built up, but when it was time to fall, it goes quickly. So it goes with the Lord in our lives. Seasons of setting things up, getting everything in the right place, the right order, just building and setting and spacing. And then when he is ready... Everything begins to move quickly, it seems, because the Lord has said, go. It felt that way when I met Aaron. Years of the Lord setting things up. It felt so long and like so much patience required as I prayed for a wife. And the message I kept getting was, be patient, just keep waiting. There were lots of things to put in place. But when it finally happened, it was pretty rapid. Lots of little things happening in quick succession. The dominoes falling one after the other. 
In fact, from the time that we first really talked until we were married, it was like 10 and a half months. Even then, a lot of things had to happen. We were in different countries even. But the Lord worked it all out and had set everything up in place. And when it began to fall in line, it went pretty quickly. We saw the same thing when the Lord finally gave the green light and we were moving back to America off the mission field, anticipating a long and challenging season to re-enter as many missionaries experience. But it was like dominoes. Within three weeks of us agreeing that we sensed we might be returning to the U.S. and moving to Oklahoma, we had a plan. We had a car. Aaron had a job lined up in education to get her foot in the door, health insurance stateside, and even a refund on Aaron's return ticket to Europe even though we had already used half the ticket, something that never happens. And six months later, when it was my turn to make the transition, I had a job offer without ever having applied. And about a month later, found myself sitting at a desk in a classroom in Oklahoma, the dominoes intricately and strategically placed by the Lord. How quickly the Lord can move when he is ready to do so. We should not be discouraged when God is building something good and intricate, putting things delicately in place one at a time. Everything rightly spaced, strategically positioned, all set up so that once things are put in motion, they fall in place fairly quickly. In these few short hours, centuries of prophecy are falling in line as God's plan for redemption unfolds. And in verse 34, when Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, those around do not understand. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled the sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will take, come take him down. Jesus is dehydrated, his tongue clinging to his mouth, as was even prophesied. And they hear, they hear, hear Eloi, Eloi, and yet they mistakenly understand it as Eli, Eli. And they conclude that Jesus is calling for Elijah. So that tongue that he could barely move, when someone can barely enunciate their words, you aren't really sure what it is that they're saying. You have to lean in a little closer. They misunderstood what Jesus was saying. But they run with this story. Hey, let's see, maybe Elijah will come swooping onto the scene and take him down. It sounded plausible to them, but this was completely an error. How dangerous it is when someone takes one word from the Lord and misunderstands it and runs with it takes their interpretation of something the Lord said and misunderstands it and goes with it. How many of the so-called Christian sects have done this, taking a verse here and a verse there and misunderstood the meaning and built whole doctrines and churches on it. But it's not what the Lord meant when he said it. Sometimes individuals, too, take something out of context, claiming they heard a word from Jesus, and yet they did not quite understand what he was saying to say, trying to say with it, and they run with it. People do this often to justify things that are not biblical or even sinful. Find a verse that seems to support what they want to do in their flesh or disobedience and say, well, it sounds to me like the Lord said this, so I'm going to do it. But all the while, that's not what Jesus said. You misunderstood it. Elijah is not going to make an appearance here. There was a connection in Scripture between the Messiah and Elijah. We read in the Old Testament prophet Micah, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And John the Baptist was a fulfillment of that, coming in the spirit of Elijah as a forerunner. Luke 1.17, speaking of John, He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Elijah also appeared a short time before this on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus' countenance change, 
and Elijah and Moses appeared. And some surmise that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 who will come as messengers before the return of the Lord. But while Elijah is tied into Jesus' ministry, it's not a part of the crucifixion scene. And no matter how much these people want to see it, there will be no imminent appearing of Elijah. We can try to twist God's time clock, can't we? Strive to make things happen on our time, and we think it will fit best. But the Lord's timing is thankfully under His sovereign will. And when we strive to make things happen on our time, it's not blessed. Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael are a clear representation of that concept. So Elijah will not be entering this scene. But Elijah will wait his cue from the Lord and come at the right time in the fullness of the blessing of the Lord. Paul had longed to see the Christians in Rome, but with all that the Lord had for him, he had never made it their way. When he wrote the epistle to the Romans, they still had never met, and Paul writes to impart a blessing to them of helping articulate the faith that they shared. And toward the end of that epistle of Romans, he shares with them, For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you. But now no longer having a place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, Whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and be, to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Paul hoped to see the Romans, something he had always longed to do. And maybe this time, as he journeys to Spain, it will work out to do so. Paul goes on, saying he first will go to Jerusalem to deliver a financial gift to the believers there who were in poverty due to a drought. But then he would head their way, God willing. And he writes, Therefore, when I perform this, when he's gone to Jerusalem and given them the gift, and has sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Paul would yield those plans to the Lord, desiring most of all that when he came, he'd come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. So even delays would be something Paul would yield to. He'd go with it because he wanted the biggest blessing, the fullness of the blessing, and not his personal blessing, but the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Interesting, when Paul finally does show up in Rome, it is as a prisoner in Acts chapter 28, after arrests and imprisonments and shipwrecks. But when he does show up, he will be there two full years, teaching some of these same people he writes to in Romans as he's under house arrest awaiting trial in Rome. The fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Many would declare that they desire God's will to take place, but sometimes we wrestle with God's timing of his will. But if we really want the fullness of the blessing, then we trust and we wait and we walk in obedience to God's time. Despite what the crowd there on Calvary thinks they might see, Elijah does not show up in, time, in this time as the events required to save mankind are fulfilled. We see in verses 37 through 39, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. It was time. All was fulfilled. Jesus, who knew no sin, had taken on the sin of the world and become the substitutionary sacrifice and willingly gave up his life at this point in all these events. Mark writes that he breathed his last. Luke fills in the blanks that Jesus cried out these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which is actually quoted from Psalm 31, verse 5. And at this point, Jesus takes his cue from the Father and gives up his life. He breathes his last. 
Jesus had given the information earlier on that he would give up his life, that it would not be taken from him. John 10, 17 through 18, it says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. So while the crucifixion was used in this, it seems that Jesus at this point of the process gave up his life. He was control in, in control after all. Death by crucifixion could take a long time, sometimes days. And Jesus has been on the cross just a few hours. We'll see in a few verses here in chapter 15 that when Joseph of Arimathea asks for, for the body of Jesus, that Pilate will marvel that he is already dead. So soon, he seems to ask. Jesus does not wait until crucifixion killed him. He breathed his last. It was time. John's gospel gives us some more insight here. John writes in chapter 19, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. The two thieves were still alive. They come to Jesus and legs are not broken. To quicken the death, they would sometimes break the legs. With shattered legs, those who were crucified could no longer push up on their legs to catch their breaths. And then one, the one hanging on the cross would suffocate and die much sooner. But just as no bones were to be broken in the Passover lamb eaten year after year by Jewish families at the same feast, Jesus would have no broken bones because he was already dead. When the soldier pierced his side out of his uh, heart sack came the blood and the water, showing that it was already separated, that he already died, having freely and willingly given up his life for you and I. Jesus did not put it off. He did not draw it out. At this time, he pressed in fully to the Father's plan of redemption. He had prayed the night before that if it were the Father's will, that the cup might pass from him. But in this moment, Jesus takes the fullness of the cup and gives up his life so that we might live. And like clockwork, we see the impact begin to, begin to manifest. Notice what Mark wrote. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. And then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The veil in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. Other Gospels talk about an earthquake, too. With Jesus' dying breath, this veil, thick veil in the temple, it separated the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the high priest went in just once a year to make atonement for sin. Symbolic of the presence of God, the very throne. Man was clearly separated. This thick veil, woven, likely 18 inches thick, torn in two from top to bottom. As if the Father reached down from heaven, taking his hands and tearing it in two like a thin little Kleenex, this thick veil no match for the power of the gospel, the way being made open. Can you imagine that tearing sound? If you've ever bent over and ripped something like your pants, I remember a kid in my class in first grade, for some reason two kids were over by the cubby holes in Mrs. Suhako's class trying to do the splits or something, and one of them ripped their pants right up the backside, the sound of ripping material. I was sent with this boy to the health aid with the attendance folder, instructed by my teacher to walk right behind him with the ripped pants 
and hold the attendance folder behind him so no one could see his tidy whities through the rip. Sent to the health aide so they could call home and get a change of pants. The rip a glaring opening to what should be hidden. Imagine the surprise and shock of the priests in the temple. The loud sound of this tearing, unmistakable sound of ripping, opening up something that should be hidden from top to bottom. And now this holy place is exposed. Everyone can peer in. All can enter in. And it's like clockwork. Jesus dies and the Father's like, well, that's it. The way is open. No waiting period. No trial period. No probationary period. The Father showing through this tearing of the veil that we can come in boldly. That our sin, which separated us from God, that it had been taken care of. Hallelujah. What a truth we can see in this. For the one who repents and comes to Christ, who confesses that they are a sinner and asks Jesus to forgive their sin. For the one who does it by true, sincere faith, the way is made open immediately. Passage is given. We pass from unforgiven to forgiven. We move from outcast to adopted. We move from sinner to saint. We move from death to life. And it happens in an instant. Positionally, we are in Christ. And it was not just at the temple, but also at the crucifixion site. People realized something had just occurred. There was no denying it. We're told in verse 39, So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. This centurion had likely been on crucifixion duty before, seen tons of crucifixions, but this time, something is different. He remarks that this one stands out from all the others. The centurion had a front row seat to all of it and was used to seeing the criminals on the cross struggling for breath, cursing, irate, defiling until the very end. But when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Something about the way that Jesus died, giving up his own life, breathing his last, almost a peaceful exhaling. And then it was silent for just a second until the ripping of the veil and the earthquake shook. But this centurion knew, truly, this man was the Son of God. There must come a moment for each of us when we realize who Jesus is. When we come to that realization of who Jesus is and why he came and what he did, and we must declare at that point who we believe him to be. It's like all of life and its experiences come down to that moment, all leading to that crucial point when we say, I finally get it. I believe. And when we do, it all changes there. Life begins again. It's called being born again. Some people remember the exact day. Some people even remember the hour. For others, it may not be that clear, but there is a point when we must declare, like the centurion there opposite of Jesus, truly this man was the Son of God. Like Peter and John declared boldly in Acts chapter 4, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just Jesus, and that is a point of realization that we must come to. We can't save ourselves, our righteous works can't save us, our efforts, our desire, our well intentions. We need the free gift of what Jesus finished on the cross. Witnessing what took place on the cross elicited a response from the centurion there, as it should from all of us as well. What is your response? Maybe you've never accepted Jesus. This could be the moment that it's all been pointing toward. All the questions, the struggles, the work of God pointing to this moment, like clockwork, him calling you to repent and be saved, even now. Don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit. Pray to Him. 
repent, agree, turn to Jesus, and ask him to save you. And sure, maybe you've already made a decision. You believe that Jesus is God's way of salvation, something you embraced long ago. But may that realization not stagnate there. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is written by Paul the Apostle. He himself came to realize on the road to Damascus that Jesus was Lord. He had denied it and fought it for so long, but finally experienced the power of God and the realization that he was working against Jesus, the very one who came to save him. And Paul surrendered to Jesus and accepted his grace and his call on his life. But years later, Paul would write to the believers in Galatia in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So much truth in those verses, a memory verse for sure. One to meditate on, piece by piece, word by word. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What Jesus did on the cross, in God's fullness of time and blessing, it was right on time, right on schedule. Fulfilling so much more than just a gruesome death in a Roman world of yesteryear. It brought salvation to the world. And for us who follow him, we are called to live a life of faith in which we are crucified with Jesus. No longer us living, but Christ living in us and through us, still technically alive, but with the opportunity to now breathe our last and live by faith in Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. It's a heavenly transaction that we will never fully grasp, but a powerful one that makes all the difference for us today and on into eternity. So Jesus, we thank you for the cross, that you willingly gave up your life. You died so that we might live. God, forgive us of our short-sightedness, where we often do not fully apply what you did for us, walking in sin, our, our guilt, or condemnation, or darkness, when we could be walking in the freedom that you give. Lord, help us to stand in all that you accomplished. Help us to stand today. Victory in Jesus, free from our guilt, our shame, the pull and power of our sin. Instead, may we be crucified with you, every old desire, every old way of thinking and living. And may we too live in the newness of life, walk in the newness of life. May you, Christ, live in us, in our relationships, in our responsibilities, in our giftings, in our callings, in our roles, in our thoughts, in our hearts, and in our world. May Christ live ever increasingly in us. Show us today, Lord, where we can yield to you so that your life might manifest itself in us for your glory alone. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.